All right, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 37 of the Aquascaping Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Art. Check us out at aquascapingpodcast.com. You can also listen to all the episodes and interviews on iTunes as well as Stitcher Radio. We have our first Aquascape critique episode coming up with a panel of expert judges. This time around, it's going to be George Farmer, Jeff Miyaki, and Hip Hong are going to be the three panelists that are going to be judging your Aquascapes. I put a post on Facebook about a week ago, and we already have almost 30 entries. So I think we're going to close down the entries already for this first episode. But if it looks like it's going to be a popular thing, we'll continue doing them in the future. Today on the show, we have from Singapore, Dennis Wong. Most of you probably know Dennis for his well-thought-out and researched videos on YouTube. We're going to be covering a range of subjects in today's conversation, so let's go right into it. My name is Dennis Wong. I'm an aquascaper from Singapore. I trade stocks and options over the American market for a living. How did you first discover aquascaping? As a kid, as with most Asian households, you know, you kept fish tanks. But I only started seriously getting into plants around, I think, 12, 13 years ago. That was where I first experimented with DIY CO2 before eventually, eventually spending more money to get the actual CO2 system. Then that's where the addiction all started. <laughs> In the big picture, looking at it from above, what are some of the big things that you've learned about growing plants that have helped you the most? I think the CO2 and light control is definitely one. There's the whole nutrient dosing angle as well, even though nowadays that seems to be overplayed by a lot of people. I, I would say that these are the three main factors. Like that is not something that is new. It's just that one has grown a bit more sensitive to tweaking the individual variable. So for example, 10 years ago, I may not know, for example, for HC, what does it look like when it is not receiving enough CO2. But today when I walk to any shop or someone's house, I can look at the tank for about five seconds and I can tell, you know, roughly what the CO2 levels are because certain, of the, certain the plants are growing in a certain way. So I think the experience is in reading both the livestock and plant reaction to the variables involved and the key variables themselves have not changed. What's your process of design? Do you acquire materials first and then use that as inspiration? Or, you know, what's your personal process? I think that I do collect hardscape material even without a design in mind. So, I mean, I visit the pet shops nearly every week. And if I see good pieces at any shop, I'll buy it first, you know, then yeah. ship it home. Sometimes uh, when you have a collection of good pieces, then the idea comes from how do you showcase you know, these few pieces that match and look good together. So the idea can come from like having a very nice piece of rock or wood at a certain angle, and then the skate forms around that. You may have an idea of having huge cliffs, but if you don't have rock that's suitable for those positions, then you are forcing an idea that like the stone cannot live up to. The skips that I do end up with tend to always move to fit the hardscape that I have. So moving on into, uh, into lighting, I saw you had a post and you mentioned or you talked a little bit about Kelvin and also about CCT. So could you explain a little bit about uh, what those are and what they mean to us? 
Kelvin rating as used by the scientific community is actually a, a number for temperature, right? So you guys use Fahrenheit, we use Celsius, the science community uses uh, Kelvin. And the, the way it works is that if you have this perfect ideal material that the science community, community calls a black body, it, that a uh, black body is one that absorbs all incident uh, electromagnetic radiation. So it's like, you can call it the perfect uh, radiator. If you heat this material up to a certain temperature, it will reflect light of a certain color and of a certain spectral distribution. An example of a black body radiator is a star. So for the various stars in the sky, you can tell their rough temperature by the, their colors. And they, they emit electromagnetic radiation uh, along a fixed spectrum curve. So based on the star's color, we can tell roughly how much blue, green, or red light they emit. However, most of our modern lights are not black body uh, radiator. They, they may look and have the similar color tones to a black body, say Kelvin, but their spectral curves are actually quite different. So you take a 6,500K LED, for example, and you touch it. It's not, definitely not at a temperature of 6,000 degrees. And for most LEDs, they have a very specific spectral curve. They have a spike in blue, a slight dip in cyan, a green hum, and then it peters to low levels at the red curve. And this is very, very different from the 6,500 that the, the sun emits, which has quite an even distribution to red, blue, green, if you actually check out the sun's uh, spectral curve. And the first thing that people have to learn about lighting is that the K rating used for stuff like stars and the sun is different from the K rating that we use for light bulbs. And hence the term uh, CCT, because it is color correlated temperature. Basically, the color tone of the, a certain light bulbs that correlates or looks the same as you can call it a star of a certain temperature. But having the same uh, color tone doesn't mean you have the same spectral curve. Wow, I mean that 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 opens up my mind quite a bit on this. So Kelvin rating on the on light bulbs, it's it's misguided. Yeah, and that's because of the ways the K rating is calculated. A greenish white light, that means by all means it looks a bit greenish to your eyes, can have the same K rating as a bulb that is slightly pinkish which can have the same K rating as a completely white bulb. Because K rating isn't an exact value, it is an aggregation of uh, the RGB values that are certain light producers. The most important thing to know about this value is that it is a visual value. That means it is calculated with respect to our eye sensitivity to the different color spectrum curves. And because our eyes are more sensitive to green compared to blue and red, the way that the K rating is calculated has a certain weightage that is shifted green as well. Wow. So with all these implications, does that mean that we can grow plants at a much lower K rating, like 2400K or, or, or something like that? Yeah, I have a lot of things in that range because I use red heavy bulbs. Um, so if you look at the bulbs that Tong Ba used, for example, he uses two red sun bulbs. His K rating will probably be around, I would guess, about 2000 plus. And I have plenty of tanks in the 2000 to 3000 plus range. And the reason that K rating for bulbs, they are either blue or red, is usually not given because K rating loses its meaning once you deviate from white bulbs. 
because for white bulbs, you can you can use the correlation that higher K rating means that it is cooler, and lower K rating means that it tends to be warmer. But for colored bulbs, uh, because of the way that it is calculated, it throws the, the calculations totally off. You know, we saw a lot of very hardscape heavy designs. You know, last year it seemed like everything was a mountain design. Where do you see things changing, and where do you think they'll go in the future? I mean, if you look at the, the the way the competitions have trended, the amount of technical work that is done to set up like a very complex hardscape with cliffs and rivers and perspective, then the amount of time required to design scapes have increased. Yeah, I would say exponentially. We have reached a very high point in terms of uh, technical complexity. But to kind of stand out in the international competitions nowadays, hardscapes that are done in one or two hours, a bit more difficult. Yeah. The level of refinement and complexity is very high. So that if you do want to participate and score well, then the, it does require a lot more technical work and time investment to create those scapes. Yeah. I do think that aquascaping clubs in each region influence the styles that are, are popular in those regions. Sometimes it's also because a particular aquascaper is very popular in his home country. Or like in the case of Brazil, I would say that the two of the biggest names, uh, Luca Galarraga and uh, Henri Luis Longaco, because they run the ADA shop and they have workshops teaching people how to aquascape and stuff. So they become very influential in moving the trends in that particular country. I do think that for countries with you know, a very deep history, you can see the aquascaping styles being tied to uh, so-called cultural histo historical factors. If you look at China-Japan, I mean, the two countries don't like each other for historical reasons, but in terms of artistic culture, they do share a lot of history. If you look at Chinese water paintings, for example, they have this whole class of landscape scenery painting that focus on painting mountains and like mountain stream flowing through mountains in the clouds. And this exactly reflects in the mountainscapes that are created by aquascapers in those regions. For Japan, they have the bonsai culture, the suiseki culture of stone appreciation. They have stone, they have stone gardening, uh, zen, you know, gardens. And I think that their appreciation for stonework and, and balance and harmony in their scapes uh, do flow from the concepts uh, in those, from those various art forms. Well, let's talk about fertilizers for a second. Uh, I, I'm using estimated index. I mean, that's just kind of what I learned. It's the easiest thing for me because I, I don't have as much experience yet as uh, some other people. So I'm just running with this and so far it's been successful for me. But what have you learned with fertilizers over you know, uh, the time that you've been aquascaping and, and what do you currently use? I, I use different um, combinations for different tanks. I guess the, the main difference between what I dose and what many people dose is that um, for nitrogen, I instead of using potassium nitrate or nitrate sources of fertilizer, I use urea quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, urea decomposes into ammonia. It's more easily taken up by plants, but if you don't have a tank that's well cycled or if you have algae issues, um, 
urea will make that problem explode in your face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and even though I did a video on EI dosing and stuff, I don't actually use EI myself. I actually dose and I use an inverted ratio. This inverted ratio means that my tank is constantly nitrate limited, right? So it, it Leibniz's law of the minimum. Plants generally use the, the most nutrients in the form of carbon followed by nitrates, then the rest of the stuff. So in terms of MPK, nitrogen is the you can, you can call it the, the, the fertilizer that makes up the most of a plant mass. And if you dose more of other stuff relative to nitrates, nitrates will naturally become the limiting uh, variable. And I do this for two reasons. Uh, one is that I find that low nitrates help bring out rates in, in certain plants, not all, certain plants. And it slows down growth rates. Because I want to slow down growth rates because I don't have to do so much pruning. So in some sense, it's like coming full circle, right? You start out wanting plants to grow faster, faster, faster. But by now, I'm trying to get it down to a, like the rate that I want it to grow. Yeah, if I'm not looking for extra plants, I, I'll press down that growth rate as low as I can go without having algae issues. Uh, if not, it's too much uh, pruning to do. The human mind gets bored of things that stay constant. So in fact, the most difficult job is constant maintenance. And that's the downfall of most good aquascapes. That means that it's not because the Aquascaper do not have the skill to, to upkeep the aquascape, but because he is bored and he wants something new. So I'll say that purely for that reason, most get picked at about four to six months, and after a year or so, people get bored, and either the, the, the skip uh, lapses to a slightly lower level that requires less maintenance, or they let it fall to pieces, then they rescape the tank. I look at your videos and your tanks are like is about as pristine as they could possibly be. I mean, they just look almost perfect. Do you still ever run into algae problems? And if you do, how do you handle them at this point? So the key to having a very clean tank is not be lazy. If you talk to Tom Ba, he will say exactly the same thing, right? There's no magic. You, me, we are all using all the same chemicals. So there's, there's no magic ratio or... Uh, like this magic fertilizer or method of diffusing CO2 that we are not telling you about. Uh, all the difference that is made is in the, the maintenance work, uh, work um, the plant management, you know, utilizing, making sure that each individual plant has its own space and light to grow, that it's not crowded out, that when there are dead leaves, you trim it off, you know, you do your regular water changes, substrate vacuuming, whatever. I think prevention is better than cure. Find out more about Dennis Wong. Check him out on Facebook as well as on YouTube. That's it for this week's episode of the Aquascaping Podcast. Thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Keep sending in your comments and questions to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out all of the episodes and interviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. The website is aquascapingpodcast.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Finish for the day.